0: So when we came in to the foyer here, a couple of the brothers came up and, very concerned, just warned me, just so you know, the air conditioning is broken in here. And it made me laugh because in England, the last two weeks have been the worst heat wave in recorded history. So they've had 104 degrees Fahrenheit recorded there for the first time that ever and the state of England was literally in a state of national emergency over these temperatures because in England, they don't have air conditioning. They have air conditioning in two places, in the bank and in the grocery store. They keep their food and their money cold and everything else <laughs> suffers. So they came in and so I told everybody, we're going to the States. And they said, what's it like where you live? It's, is it hot? It's cold? I said, yeah, it'll be similar to how it is now. They're, oh no, Are you guys gonna be okay? Oh no, don't, don't worry. They have air conditioning in the States. And when I preach on Sundays, I wear a jacket and a tie, and it's hot, and I'm uh, suffering and, and preaching at the same time, and I thought, well, at least when I preach in Spokane, there will be nice air conditioning blowing, it'll be totally fine. So God has a sense of humor, and, and that's great. So. Um, but really thankful to be here with you all. Thanks for welcoming us. We're going to be in the First John this morning, um, the book of First John chapter 2. I'm going to read our text and and pray for us, and then we'll we'll hopefully jump right in. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are uh, desperate to know you and to know that you know us and you love us. In this world that distracts us, that dissuades us from loving you and being faithful to you we need the reminder in these verses of your power to save and to hold us. I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would grant us clarity of mind so that we can understand what you would have us understand, so that we can see your truth, to see our lack, and to apply the truth to our lives, so that we can be conformed to the image of your precious Son, so that our lives would be the testimony of your goodness and grace, the love that we have that you've given us for you and for your glory. I pray that your kingdom would be strengthened by our time in the word this morning. In your name, amen. We do not act like that in our family. We do not act like that in this family. Have you ever heard that? If you're like me, you heard it a little bit too much growing up, and it was scary for me the first time that I heard myself saying it to one of my precious boys in the back. when I would fight with my sister as a child or act disrespectfully, that's what I would hear. "Son, we do not act like that in this family." Now now, the logical answer to that statement, if you are the son in this situation, is to look back at your parent and say. Yes, we do. I just did act like that Right, but when the parent says that they're not talking about what what's real, right? They're they're setting an expectation. They're giving you the standard. Oh, excuse me son in our family That is not acceptable behavior In a world where dean boys act as they should little sisters and little brothers aren't getting punched or kicked Noses aren't getting picked in public, right? These are the basic standards of living that we have as a family. Now, in that moment, if I said that to my son and he bursts into tears and looks at me and says, well, whose family am I in now? Right? You kicked me out, right? Obviously, there's a misunderstanding. I need to explain myself to him. I need to explain that what they do doesn't change who they are. They can't become not a Dean child anymore whether they like it or not. but In our text today, we're actually seeing a similar situation. See, in the first chapter of 1 John, the apostle has been arguing very forcefully and simply that believers in Christ do not sin. He basically says, we do not act like that in this family. But you can imagine that as John is writing this, his pen stops And he thinks of who he's writing to. And he knows that he needs to consider his readers. Consider what they have experienced in their recent history as a church. He needs to qualify this message for their sake. And here's the question that he needs to answer. Here's the qualification he needs to make. If the Christian has fellowship with God by walking in the light... By casting aside darkness, what are we to do with the sin that is still in our lives? If we are walking in the light, if we are casting aside sin, what do we do with the fact that day to day, we still sin? What John does that's so important for us to see is he bases his answer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the big idea, if you're a note taker like me and you want to write big idea at the top of your page, the big idea is in First John 2, 1 through 6, it declares that Jesus Christ stands at the center of every believer's security and assurance. Jesus Christ stands at the center of every believer's security and assurance. In verses 1 and 2, John is going to explain to us that our eternal security is in the finished work of Christ Jesus for us. When I say security, I'm talking about the theological truth about you when you are in Christ. You are secure in your salvation. Nothing can change your security. Security is a fact, it has nothing to do with what you do, it's like your identity. But then in verses 3 through 6, John explains that the Christian's assurance is based on Christ's continuing work in us. So we have our security, that's the fact about us. Our assurance is the continued work of Christ in us. Christians who want to feel their salvation are looking for assurance, right? That's the word that we use to say, I don't really feel very saved right now. I don't have a lot of assurance, if it's a fact that we are secure, then assurance is our experience of that fact. No, I really am a Christian. This is how I know. And that assurance comes from Jesus' work in us. Many of us can and do and should admit that at times in our lives, we don't feel as much assurance as we wish we do, do we? There are seasons, there are times of life where you question your your faithfulness to God. You wonder, am I really saved? How do I know? What's going on? There are times in all of our walks where that can be a struggle, and for some of us, it's a much more difficult struggle than others. But we are secure, and that's John's fundamental point. In our text today, John is going to give us some grounds that can and should strengthen our experience of the security of our salvation, the fact that you are in the family of God. Now, this is my first time here, and I don't know as many of you as well as I wish I did, but I'm fairly certain that most of us in this room have struggled with assurance before or are struggling with it right now. And I understand that. I've been there myself. And I think what often happens to us when we feel this question, am I saved? How saved am I? Do I am I being faithful? Our temptation is to look inside ourselves to psychoanalyze ourselves and work out all the ways that we're failing and to try to figure it out. It's not, we should not be turning inward when we're struggling with our assurance. We should not be looking to the world's answers for depression and anxiety and lack of self-esteem when we're wondering about the salvation of God. Rather, we need to look to the Word of God, and we need to have a deep and grounded theology. The better you know your Savior, the more confidently you can preach to yourself who he is and what he has accomplished, the better equipped you will be to feel and to know that you are secure in Christ. So this morning, I want to worship Jesus with you as we witness who he is in this text. And I want to find comfort in the fact that he's working in and for us. And I also want to get practical And think about some of the reasons why we struggle with assurance and give us some equipping that we can use to grow in that assurance. Okay, So let's turn to verse 1. The first point for my note takers is that you are secured in the work of Christ for you. You are secured in the work of Christ for you. Now John starts out verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, My little children. Now, he's not speaking like the author to the Hebrews. He's not saying, when are you going to grow up? What he's saying here is he's, as a father, tenderly trying to grab the attention of his readers and say, okay, okay, I know what I just said was intense. So listen up because I want to qualify now. I want you to listen to me, listen to your spiritual father To the apostle, listen to what I'm going to say. And then he says these words. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he says his standard. My standard for you as a Christian, do not sin. That's what he expects of his readers. That's what he expects of you and I if we're believers. Now what are these things? He says, I'm writing these things to you. We could say that it's the letter as a whole, but I think what he's really getting at is what the immediate context of this, this verse, the paragraph that comes right before this. I want to read it. Listen to 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is what John had just finished writing to these people. He says, This is the message we have heard from him, that is from Christ, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So those that's that's the these things that John is saying. These things tell us that we should not sin. What has John said? He said that Christians do not walk in darkness. They do not deceive themselves or others, they do not deny the truth. Instead, Christians walk in the light. They enjoy fellowship with God and his people. Christians are cleansed from sin. They're regularly repenting and being forgiven by God. This is black and white language. There's no sometimes or often or on the good days, right? This is just is, is, is. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's what scares us about the book of 1 John. If you read through 1 John quickly, you walk away a little bit nervous that maybe you're not doing what you should be doing. Think back over the last week, over the moments where you lost your temper with your kids or your spouse, over that time where you didn't fight your anxiety but just gave right into it, the times that you looked where you shouldn't have for a second time. Those are the kinds of things that come to mind when we read these verses. And we're thinking, but John, I I do sin. I'm still sinning. So this description of the Christian life is, in one sense, it's frightening. But John doesn't intend for us to be fearful. He doesn't want us to be discouraged. In fact, the whole point of this letter is to be an encouragement to the people at this church. At the end of the letter in uh, 1 John 5.13... He writes that his purpose is that the readers would know that they have eternal life, that they would be confident, settled, secure, that they are Christ's people. Now, why does John want to encourage his readers this way? What's the need for this letter? Well, as you read the rest of 1 John, it becomes clear that the apostle writes to a group of Christians who had just endured a really difficult season. They began their lives as Christians having heard the message of the gospel probably directly from an apostle. And so they set aside their former lives and committed themselves to the church. And they had this you know, early church faithful group of people who had given up everything to follow Christ. But then over time within the church, people had started to accept different philosophies and beliefs. And they had started to, to infiltrate into the thinking of some of the people in the church. And they eventually, people were convinced of falsehood and left. Now think about how this would have felt. These people made a commitment that we really can't understand. Coming from a pagan background and having to commit to the church was casting aside everything you knew from your former life. It's not easy believism back then. This is the hardest thing that they could do. So there was a bond in these people that was fierce and loyal and committed. And then that bond was torn apart. It was broken. Now, we're not sure exactly what these people believed, but we do know that this false teaching that came up in the church was not a a trivial matter. This isn't, you know, the finer points of secondary theological issues or trying to decide who to vote for. This is the question is Jesus really actually God? Do we actually have to stop sinning? And these aren't debates happening way over in Jerusalem or for us happening on Twitter, right? This is within the family that they had formed. These are their friends, their brothers and sisters, their leaders, their shepherds who are becoming convinced of something And breaking off from the church. This debate is significant and personal. It hits close to home. And and this split would have hurt deeply. And whenever something like that happens. You have a group of people who have decided to remain faithful. To be settled with the old truth. The original gospel that they heard. But they are confused. And they're doubtful. Because you see your loved ones leave. Leave. You see the people who you trusted mock what you believe and walk away. And doubt begins to enter your mind. Did I, did I really do the right thing? C- could he really be wrong, him? I don't know. Could, what, if, what, if, what if I'm on the wrong team? What if I picked the wrong side? And so John writes this letter saying, you did the right thing. You're on the right team. You have the right belief. Stay, be settled, be confident, be encouraged. So all of these statements are written in this context for these people who have had their lives shattered, torn apart, and they're clinging on for dear life and they're fearful. So he writes to help them grow out of the pain of false teaching and division and gain back their confidence in the gospel that gave them the courage to break away from the world in the first place. So when he makes these statements, like we just read in verses 5 through 10, they're to encourage them. He's showing them that the people who left were wrong, and the people who remain were doing the right thing. Because if you are a Christian, your life looks different, right? That's the fundamental fact. If you are a Christian, you look different. You look different from the world, and you look different from how you looked before. Yes, we should not sin. We should never sin. And so, just like we talked about in the introduction, what John is doing is he's given the ideal. We do not act like that in this family. But now comes the reality in verses 1 and 2. He says, But if anyone does sin. Now, that clause should fill you with hope and encouragement, it should be the point where you take a sigh of relief. Say, okay, good, because I just did, right? So glad that clause that but needs to be there, otherwise I'm in big trouble. So John is using this language to contrast that ideal and the reality. The ideal is not to sin, it's to live out your justification in perfect conformity to the will of God. But the reality is that sin will occur. And in fact, the language here that says, but if anyone does sin, that if is assumed to be true. So we could say, but when anyone sins, but when we sin. And he says, we, do you notice that up until now he's been talking about Christians in general, but when he talks about sin, the apostle gets right down with his people and says, but when we sin, we have an advocate. He's saying me too, just because I'm the teacher, just because I'm the friend, the beloved apostle doesn't mean that I need this advocate any less. We need this advocate. So what do we have? He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this is the first work of Christ. This is our first bedrock of our eternal security. Jesus as advocate. Now this is the same term that you see Jesus use of the Holy Spirit in John 14, where we get helper or comforter. This advocate is someone who stands alongside you as a friend and defends you. Sometimes used uh, as a courtroom scene for your lawyer, your, your, your person who comes alongside you and helps you navigate the trial against you. Jesus, And what John is saying here is, if Jesus is your advocate, if he really stands before the Father minute by minute defending you, what do you have to be worried about? What do you have to be fearful of? Why would you doubt? Now, when I say lawyer, I'm not talking about the modern courtroom drama scene. Jesus is not the hotshot lawyer who stakes his entire career on a case that no one could win. I like to imagine Yannick, that he just likes to come into a courtroom with this big bundle of evidence and he throws it down on the desk and says, "'Your honor, I object.'" I don't think that happens in patent law. I don't know. I've never been in a patent law courtroom. That's not what it's like, right? The the drama of the gospel has already been worked out. The battle is already won. And John says that here because he says that Jesus is the righteous advocate. He is qualified. He meets the standard necessary to stand up for us. He's fit to serve. He's not holding back an angry, violent God. He's pointing to his work on the cross and saying, Paid, paid, paid. All of this debt has been paid. And all of heaven is rejoicing every time he advocates. Over and over again. Because every time he does, he points to the work of the gospel. He magnifies the glory of God in the accomplished work on the cross. See, when a Christian sins, Jesus can say, for this sinner, I gave up my place in heaven and I chose to live on earth as a man. For this sinner, I was born of the Virgin Mary in obscurity. For this sinner, I lived a sinful life and obeyed the law. For this sinner, I submitted to a false to false accusations and underwent a sham trial. For this sinner, I willingly received the death penalty that I did not deserve. For this sinner, I allowed creatures who I created to pin me to a cross made out of a tree that I fashioned. For this sinner, I submitted to my heavenly father's wrath poured out on me. For this sinner, I took the place of each of my sheep with their names on my lips written on my hands as I died on the cross. For this sinner, I was buried in a tomb. For this sinner, I was raised from death to demonstrate that my sacrifice was sufficient and the debt was paid. And for this sinner, I now cry out my advocacy so that God can be glorified and they can be redeemed. That's what's happening for you, Christian, in heaven. Understand, Christian, there is no tension in heaven over your sin. It's not like every time you sin, the angels are like, Oh, no, is this going to be it? Is this the time where he doesn't get forgiven? No. Every time the throne room of God is not anxious, it is rejoicing in the beauty of Christ's work for you. Now, hear me carefully. If you're not a Christian, what I just described is not happening for you. This is a precious gift. This is a treasure and a blessing that God gives to those who repent of their sin and submit to Jesus as their Lord. If you do not have Jesus as your Lord, you do not have Jesus as your advocate. There's no one standing before the judge to defend for you. We all sin, and sinning is doing things that offend, that displease the God who made you. If you disobey your parents, you deserve a spanking or some form of discipline, right kids? If you disobey disobey the police, then you're going to get an even greater punishment, right? If you commit treason against your country, you're in line for the death penalty. Well, how much more if you sin against the authority of authorities? The creator. The king of kings. When you sin, you willingly work against the purpose that you were made for. To glorify God. And so, of course, the necessary response to that is punishment. It's eternal punishment. And the reason that we Christians cling so desperately to our Savior is because we see our sin. And we see what we deserve. And we see, by God's grace, that only Christ offers freedom from that Condemnation. He stood in our place. He received all the punishment that we deserve so that we can have a relationship with God and do what we were made to do. That's why we're so anxious not to sin. That's why these verses initially cause us fear or confusion. We want to live in light of the work of Christ. But as I said, if you're not a Christian, there's no buffer, no one is standing in the way of what you deserve. No one is sufficient. You cannot represent yourself. If you do not repent and submit to Christ, you will answer for your sin and you will have nothing to show for yourself. So hear me when I say you do not want that to happen. If that's you and and you're here this morning and you haven't repented of your sins, don't live under judgment for another second. Don't wait. Come and talk to me or Paul or any of the other Christians in this room afterwards and just say, what do I do so that I can live under the Lordship of Christ? When you do this, he will wash you in that precious blood and you will be eternally secure. You will be forgiven. And you will be able to live a life that honors him, which is what you actually want to do even though you don't realize it. You can do that today. You can receive a new heart today. But Christians, that advocacy, it's not occasional. It's not like once a month Jesus checks in on everybody and does some advocating to get us back on track. It's a present tense constant work happening right now as you are sitting here and as you sinned against your spouse on the way to church or the guy who cut you off in traffic. Jesus is advocating for your anxiety right now as you're thinking about what's coming this week. He's advocating for all of the sin. He's doing it right this moment. And like I said, he is saying, she is mine. He is mine. They're with me, forgiven and redeemed. So in light of that, that incredible work that, again, that Jesus is doing, how can we doubt our security? How can we question our salvation? Jesus is working for you now, Christian. So that would be enough. That'd be plenty for us to go off of. But John is not done yet. Look at verse 2. He says that this advocate is also the propitiation for our sins. Now, I don't know if you were planning on getting all sorts of big theological words this morning. But propitiation is a really good word. It's a word that should make you really happy. It's a word that actually means make happy. And we know what, the importance of propitiation in Hebrews nine twenty two, which says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As I've already said, the payment for sin is death, and this payment can only be made with death. And this is where propitiation comes in, because God is wrathful against our sin, and we need Him to no longer be wrathful. And so propitiation, sacrifice made, makes the wrathful God happy. It pleases him to see the punishment paid. When Christ died, the sacrifice he made propitiated our sin. So we can shift from the courtroom to the debt collector. Jesus paid our debts. Everything is covered. There's no outstanding balance. Now, notice that Jesus is our advocate, but it doesn't say here that he's our propitiator. It says he's our propitiation. And what that means is that he himself is the sacrifice. If Jesus is our high priest, he is also the lamb who is slaughtered on our behalf. He's paid the debt of all the sins that you've committed and all the sins you will commit. And as I've said multiple times now only the blood of jesus is sufficient to pay for that sin only a perfect sinless fully righteous human man can represent you and die for your sins and because jesus was and because he did we have a propitiation that's sufficient so we have this advocate we have this propitiation our debt is paid Our sins are represented in the court of law, but John isn't quite done yet. At the end of verse 2, he adds one little phrase that's really important. It emphasizes the worth of Jesus' propitiation. He says, He is our propitiation, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it's tempting, and some have read into this passage to say that Jesus died, and everyone is going to be saved because his sin is for the whole, his death is for the whole world. Is John saying that Jesus died for everyone? Well, if so, what about the people that we just read about in verses five through ten, who are liars and self deceivers and walking in the darkness? What about the people who left this church that he's writing to? The people who didn't proclaim Jesus as God and didn't feel the need to stop sinning. Is John saying that Jesus could have died for everyone but that a lot of those people would not be changed by his death? There's a huge theological debate which rages around this question. And I'm not going to get into it because I don't think John is getting at that at all. I don't think that's what he's concerned about in this passage. I think what he's concerned about in this passage is you understanding how valuable the propitiation of Christ is. If John is arguing, sorry, John is speaking about the worth of Jesus' propitiation, the sacrifice that Jesus made doesn't just pay for the Jews. It doesn't just pay for the apostles or the disciples or the people with enough money or who went to the right schools. It pays for every single elect person in the history of the world. The world is not every person individually, but it's the entire sphere of existence. The idea here is that Jesus' blood covers a world's worth of sin. Creation's sin is solved in the death of Christ. Just as God once stopped the sin of the world by flooding it, Jesus pays the penalty of sin by flooding the world with his blood. It's the worth. We don't barely get saved. You aren't eking across the line. You are fully and completely saved. The debt is fully and completely paid. You are represented by a savior, Christian, who has every right to stand up and declare you forgiven. That's the kind of truth which should cause you to have peace and hope in your security in Christ. So John tells us that we must not sin. That's why he's writing, right? But then he's saying, when you do sin, don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't be like the kid who says, I'm not in the family anymore. He says, look to Jesus. Look to the person who saved you, the bedrock of your security, not to your own works. Notice back in in verse 1, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have An advocate he doesn't say we advocate for ourselves we are not acting the only action we are committing in these verses is sinning and Jesus is doing all the acting on our behalf he is the one who is advocating he is the one who is paying the debt so we have this incredibly effective work accomplished for us we are secure eternally So does that mean that we're good to go? You're saved, man. Go out, do what you need to do. Live life. Don't worry about the consequences. That's the very teaching that was happening in this church. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, are we to go on sinning so that grace may abound by no means. What we see in the next few verses is how our works play into it. As I just said, our security has nothing to do with our works, right? It's all Jesus' work. But what we'll see in our second point in verses 3 through 6 is that your assurance is based on the work of Christ in you. You are assured by the work of Christ in you. You were secure in the work of Christ for you, and now you will be assured by the work of Christ in you. John is shifting here, and now he's discussing how Christians know that they have this advocacy and propitiation. Okay, so there's this incredible Savior who's done all these things. How do I get on that team? How do I know I'm on that team? He explains how we can have that experience of security. And there's two ways. First, Christians obey the word of Christ. Look at verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see, the beauty of the works of a professing believer is that they're the proof of Christ's work in you. To know Christ is simply to have a real relationship with him. So when John says, how do we know if we know him? He's saying, how do we know that we have a relationship with him? He says, if we Keep his commandments. When we keep his commandments, we prove that we are in a relationship with Christ. Now, we know this practically, right? Think about any of your relationships. Any real relationship, any healthy relationship has give and take to it. Now, in today's culture, we say that if you love me, you let me do whatever I want. But the Bible says that if you love me, you do what is best for me, including giving up what you want for me, right? Right? That's the give and take of a real healthy biblical relationship. Did you ever have a friend like in college who fell in love with someone and all of a sudden became a totally different person, right? This is a lot of times a really good thing, especially for young men, right? All of a sudden this dude knows how to shower. Wow, he's shaving. He's not sleeping until noon anymore. He's only playing video games for two hours a day. This is great. He's got a part-time job at Wendy's. We're going places. Love is transformational. My dad always says that you need, young men need to find a woman who will make them want to be a better man. Right? Now, how much more should your relationship with Christ change everything about you? Right? I found Jesus. I am different now. I am not the same. It doesn't transform you. you don't, you're still the same you you're still sinning. You're still struggling. You're still growing. But now you find joy in obeying the commandments of God. Something that you know you didn't find joy in before. That doesn't mean you're perfect at it, but you, now you want to. You desire to do that. As Jesus tells us in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To know Jesus is to love him, and to love him is to keep his commandments. Now, what are those commandments? It's I mean to summarize it's to love God and to love others sacrificially as he did right love one another as I have loved you do you love God sacrificially do you love others sacrificially do you keep Jesus' commands are you genuinely committed to loving others Christian if you are listen to me it's really this simple that is a sign of your salvation because unbelievers don't do that. They're not committed to loving others. Look at the next verse in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. See, it's not enough to say you love Jesus and that you have a relationship with him if there's no change of life. If there's no change of affections. And if you have a change of life and a change of affections, you will have a change of actions. An unbeliever doesn't have that. They might unintentionally or accidentally or occasionally do things that are in obedience to God's commandments. But Isaiah tells us that those deeds are what? They're filthy rags, right? Because the intention is not consistent with loving God or loving others. Not right now. Afterwards, we'll talk, okay? You can't just say, yeah, I love God, I'm a Christian, and go on being the same. You can't do that you won't live like the world lives anymore. Instead, the Christian lives a life marked by a pattern of attempting to obey Jesus' commandments in love for him because of your relationship with him. So, finally, in verse 5, John gets to the point. He says, Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. Now, the word basically takes the commandment and says not only Jesus' commandments, but everything that he said. He zooms the lens out from what Jesus commanded to all of his teaching. The person who lives this way has the love of God perfected in him. Now, the love of God is a little awkward. Are we saying that it's God's love for us being perfected? I don't think so, because the present reality is that God's love for us culminates in our glorification, culminates in our being with him, right? And we're not there yet. I think it's our love for God. The love of God, the love that you have for God is perfected when you do his word. Now, the the term perfected here is what throws us off because we know that our love for God isn't perfect yet, right? I mean, any of us would say that. I don't love him as well as I could, but this term really doesn't mean perfect as in without any fault. It means made complete. And this makes sense, right? Because you have to be perfect consistent in what you say it's silly to say you love god if you don't actually act out that love if you're married and you say i love you but you don't do anything to show it then it's obviously not true the love of god results in obedience and until there's no obedience there's no reason to profess a to believe a profession of love so when we see that someone keeps the Word of God, that someone obeys Him, then we know that they really love Him. Now, this act of self examination that John gives us here is simple and it's short. Do you obey Jesus? You love Him. He doesn't give us a 16 week study on how to know every in and out of your soul and decide if you're as Christian as you should be. It's simple. Do you love Jesus and do you sacrifice to show that love? He's painting a picture of mutual love. Jesus, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, loves and has loved us. And so the result of that love is our love for him. And we show that love by obeying him. Do you try your hardest to do what Jesus said because you love him? Then you know him and in you the love of God is perfected. That's good news. That's the gospel. That is the foundation of your assurance. And once again, who's at the center of this? Jesus. Not me, not you. Jesus. So the first fact about Christians who are secured in Christ's work then is that they obey his commandments. But then we see that they also imitate the walk of Christ. John says in the second half of verse 5, "...by this we may know that we are in him." Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. So in verse 3, we were trying to figure out if we know him, if we have that relationship. And now we're trying to see if we are in him. And I know that Paul has been working through Ephesians 1, and you guys are thinking about union with Christ and being in Christ. And John is saying, here's how you know that you are in Christ. Here's how you know that you abide with him, and we want to abide, right? What does Jesus say in John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So when John's saying, this is how we know we are in him. This is how we know we abide. Our ears should perk up. We want to know. What, how do we know? Well, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So again, there's a person who testifies something. In this case, they're currently abiding in him. How do you know that that's true? If Jesus did it, you do it. You should follow the mind of Christ as you seek to live your life. The Christian is absorbed in the teaching and action of Christ, See, seeing him as their highest example. The person that they want to be like. We're fans of Jesus. You, you know, today, fans, these fanatics, right? I mean, you, can, you are equipped now to follow anyone or anything you want to a level of absurdity that is beyond comprehension. Thanks to the internet, you can be a fan of anything, no matter how obscure and no matter how deeply, to a disturbing level, right? You can be a fan of all sorts of weird stuff. We know how to be fans. We know how to love something and get excited about a concert or a sport Or a hobby, right? Well, Jesus is your hobby. Jesus is your favorite thing. And the amount of intensity that you give in your mind to that, to fishing or whitewater rafting or video games, whatever it is, it should be nothing compared to what you give to your Savior. Because you want to walk as He walked. How do you walk as someone walks? You need to know them. You need to know what they did and how they lived. John is saying that the person who says they love God must live like God. Anything else is backwards. It makes no sense and that's why I keep saying that the gospel is transformational because none of us walk like Jesus before he saves us. If you're going to do this, you're going to be different. <clears throat> so, at the beginning I said, we're talking about assurance. And we see in these in verses 3 through 6 this understanding of jesus's work in us that should give us assurance so what what are we talking about when we talk about assurance i want to step back for a minute and just discuss assurance and then get back into this text assurance what do i mean when i say assurance well there's the simple fact of security security is like a light switch you are either on or off you are secure or you are not secure does that make sense it's like your justification you can't be 50 percent justified You can't be 60% secure. You're either secure or you're not. No one is partially forgiven. But assurance is your experience of that salvation, that truth about you. It's like a dimmer switch. It ebbs and flows, right? It's really bright right now. It's really dim right now. There are seasons where you're feeling great. You know Jesus and he knows you. You have no doubt in your mind. And then there are seasons where you are just not so sure. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about assurance. It's related more to like sanctification. You know, there are are seasons where you are struggling with the burden of sin. There's a particular issue that just will not let go of your soul. That's the parallel to assurance. Now, when you graduate college, you walk across the um, stage and they give you this degree and they say, congratulations, you now have your degree in whatever it is. Now, you are now qualified to start your career in that, right? A couple years ago, I got a master's in divinity. I supposedly am now a master of being divine. That is madness, right? So it's like, here you go, congratulations, go start your career. That, that, that doesn't mean, just because that's true about you doesn't mean that you feel any confidence that you are qualified. It's not until you start working, right? Until you get into the job, until you get some years under your belt, you start to say, yeah, okay, I know what this means. I I am an accountant. I am a lawyer, whatever it is. Until you actually do the job. That's where our assurance comes into play with our security. The fact is that if you have faith, you are saved and there's nothing you can do about that. Salvation. Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's your security, not even you. You can't even snatch yourself out of the Father's hand. So, that's true, but we've said we don't always feel that way. And if we're honest, what we really want is to feel that way, don't we? We want to feel close to God. We want to feel saved. It's weird to, to have something be true about you and not feel like it's true. If you're married and you're not close to your spouse, it doesn't matter how married you are. You don't feel right, right? That, that needs to change. That can't go on. So what if you can see the proof of your faith? You know that, that God has worked in your life, and that you have new affections, but you have no feelings. You don't have that assurance. Why would that be? Well, I have three general reasons why you might not have assurance. Three possible causes for your struggle to feel as saved as you are. First is bad teaching. If you have bad theology... You might struggle with assurance if you're convinced that you can lose your salvation, then you're going to struggle with assurance If you have a bad theology of who jesus is and what he's done Then it's going to feel like it's really easy for you to break off from him You need to have good teaching. You need to be washed in the water of the word You need to drink deeply from god's truth so that you can know What is really true and be confident in it if you have bad teaching you might have bad assurance The second is bad habits. If you're weak in your commitment to God, or if you're going through a season where you prefer your sin, should you feel assured? If a husband ignores his wife for months on end, should he be surprised that she has no warmth towards him? That'd be absurd, right? He's not maintaining the relationship. Well, the same thing with you and God. If you aren't pursuing God, if you aren't loving God, if you aren't chasing after Him and praying and being known by Him, then <clears throat> it's actually grace for Him to withhold assurance from you. You shouldn't be confident in those times. You're not loving Him. You're not, you're not maintaining that relationship. That's actually a blessing because He's saying something's wrong. Wake up. You need to get your habits in line. And finally, there are bad times. There are periods of darkness. Sometimes the Lord allows us not to feel what we want in order to test our faith, in order to push us to trust in Him. If you read the Psalms, you see this again and again and again with the psalmist saying, Lord, where are you? How long? We can know we are saved. We can see the proof that we are secure and yet not have the experience of feeling it. We've got bad teachings, we've got bad habits, and we've got bad times. Those are some of the causes that you, you might be struggling with assurance. And you might not be today, and you might be next week. And you can go back to these things and think, okay, what, what might it be? It could be one of these three general things. So how does our text help us with this? Well, first, we can see that people can have false assurance, That's what John gets after in verse 4. He says, if you say you know him, but you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar. If you say you know Jesus, there ought to be fruit. You ought to look different. If you haven't been taught well about the need for repentance, which is a huge problem in the church today, you can walk around proclaiming Christ while not doing anything to change the sin in your life. You must look different. If you haven't changed, you shouldn't have assurance. If you haven't been changed by Jesus, then you shouldn't say you've been changed by Jesus, right? Each and every one of us should be examining our hearts. We should be looking for real change, for real obedience to the commandments and the words of Jesus. Because if that change isn't there, that's a good reason to suspect why you have no assurance. Because you probably have no security in the first place. So yes, we can have false assurance. But also, second, you can have assurance. Our problem for most of us is not that we don't have assurance. The problem is we read verses like Matthew 25, where Jesus people come to Jesus and say, I'm excited to go into heaven. I've been really faithful. And Jesus says what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. And you read that verse, and it's terrifying, isn't it? And yeah, it should be, right? There should be seasons where you step back and you examine yourself and you say, am I faithful? But you need to do that in light with the rest of the commands of Scripture. And what does Jesus say again and again and again? He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Jesus does not want you to live in constant fear because your salvation is not based on your perfection. It's based on Christ's perfection. It's based on His work. You need to get your thinking straight. You need to rejoice and rest in the work of your Savior. So do you want proof? Examine your life. That's what John tells you to do here. Do you have new desires? Do you want to do what the Lord commands because you love Him? Are you doing what He commands? Well, praise the Lord. It really is that simple. According to John, that is enough for you to base your assurance off of. Don't add to that. Don't try to create more qualifications. Don't become pharisaical. I'm only going to feel like a Christian if I'm this good. If I'm awesome at all of this stuff. I need to have a podcast. I need to have a thousand Instagram followers who look at all of my really cheesy posts about the Bible. Otherwise, I don't know. What if I'm not faithful enough? What if I'm not getting up early enough in the morning? No, are you, do you love God? Do you want to obey? Are you trying to obey? And finally, our text gives us right here a very real reason why you might not have the assurance you crave. You can go throughout scripture and you can look at the bad teaching and the bad habits and the bad times, and you should. But right here we see specifically Bad habits. Are you failing to walk as Jesus walked? Are you giving too much space to sin or spiritual laziness? Are you not doing the hard work of diligently growing your faith? And maybe you don't have assurance because God wants you to repent. Maybe you don't have assurance because you need to make a change. You're not pursuing the relationship with Christ that he's given you. If that's you, if you're in the bad habits category, if, you can, if you're sitting here right now and I'm saying this and there's something in the back of your mind, you're going, yep, okay, that's it, that's the thing. Just repent, cry out for help. Cling to the Savior who you know is your propitiation, who you know willingly, joyfully, eagerly advocates, advocates for you. Cry out to him for help. But friends, be careful not to live a life of constant self-examination and introspection. It is really easy to find sin in your life. You do not have to look that hard. You do not have to spend very much time. If you're like me, or if you have a spouse, it is pretty quick. But Jesus tells his followers, as I said, don't fear. We fear the Lord, but we don't fear that God would fail to secure us. We don't fear that he would forget us or lose his grip on us. Don't focus your attention on your sin. Allow your sin to draw you to your Savior for help. And forgiveness. Now, here's the thing it feels really godly to be torn up all the time about your sin. How are you doing? Oh, man, just no progress. I'm terrible, sinner. I need help. But when you're introspective and condemning yourself constantly, are you really that faithful to evangelize? Are you able to speak the truth in love to others? Are you able to serve faithfully? Satan wins when we are trapped in this cycle of self-condemnation. We might be technically walking in the light, but we're down navel-gazing and we're still running into the telephone poles and we might as well not be able to see because we're useless. Yes, you sin. Yes, we all sin. But you have a much greater Savior than your sin. So we see in our text today that what we can have is knowledge that we are secure. You can see the proof of your faith. You can see the proof of his work in you. Our text doesn't talk about the feelings. It doesn't talk about the emotions. It talks about the knowledge. We can know that we are in him. We can know that we know him. The assurance is never guaranteed. That feeling that you want is not promised here, but the knowledge is. Can you be content, Christian, if God doesn't grant you the feeling of assurance? Maybe, just maybe, you're in a season where the Lord wants you to practice contentment even though you don't have the feelings during the worship service that you want to feel. Or your prayer time isn't just alive and vibrant. This is a chance to depend on him. Will you do it? Will you remember that the pain of trials and temptations will ultimately grow your faith? James 1 reminds us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." What if the feeling that you're in right now, this dark time that you're in right now, is God's work to prepare you for what he has in store for your life? Can you be content in that even though you hate it? If God has ordained a season in which you do not feel the comfort of your assurance, don't despair. Continue to be faithful to walk as Jesus walked and see what he'll do with it. Sometimes we can see that we obey, we see that we walk with him, but when we see the sin we struggle with, we start to worry. And John knows that, and he says, but when we sin. But does he look back to us at that point? No, he looks to Jesus. Our text today explains that our eternal security and our present assurance revolve around the work of our Savior. Jesus Christ, you are secured by the work of Christ for you and you are assured by the work of Christ in you. You see the work of Christ for you on the cross and the work of Christ in you in your transformed life. You cannot be more or less secure, brothers and sisters. That's like saying you're more or less justified. When I tell my sons, we don't act like that, I'm not threatening them with expulsion from the family. There's nothing that they can do to get rid of me. But what I am calling them to do is act in accordance with what I expect of them. To live up to the identity of our family. And that is exactly what the Apostle John is doing to you, Christian, in this passage. Christian, you have been bought. You are secure and adopted and the work of Christ is complete, total, powerful, and beautiful. Your Savior loves you and He is right now advocating for you. Now live like it. Follow Him. Obey Him. Become like Him in every possible way, shape, and form that you can because that is the Christian life. That is the foundation of your assurance. We don't sin. And when we do, we look to our Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the work that you did that we could not do. Thank you that when we stand before you one day we will point to your work and not our own work. Our own work stands to condemn us, proves that we need judgment, but your work demonstrates the grace of of the Creator God who made us to be in fellowship with Him. Thank you that because of what you've done, we can know you and have fellowship with you and be in relationship with you and even begin to do good in your name so that you can be glorified. I pray for those of us today who struggle with assurance, who fear and who doubt their salvation, remind them that salvation won by you is a perfect and finished salvation. Help us to be sanctified. Help us to chase after righteousness, to make you our first love and our best and most prized hobby, the thing that we care about most and pursue with eagerness and joy. Make us able to do so with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to love you and to cherish you And make us faithful witnesses for you because of that. Let our lives be an example that rocks this world. People can see that we love differently, that we care differently, that we prioritize different things. Help us to stand out, to make the worldly uncomfortable, because we love our Savior and we walk as he walked. You can do that and you love to do that. Make that true in our lives today so that your kingdom can be made great. So that your name can be glorified and so that we can become more like you. We pray this in the name of your precious son. Amen.